Okay. Well, as I was introduced, my name's Andy and live just down the road here. Was at Heartland for a number of years and now working at our national office. But I'm here this week and next week, so we're going to do kind of a two-part and look at this thing of what does it mean to be living by his presence. Um, I've been pastoring, started pastoring when it was still the 80s. I get in on the last year, 89, started in ministry and uh, had just a different journey kind of to this point. Um, you, you go into something like this and I went in as a bit of an introvert and shy, so I didn't really like public speaking at all. And I remember being in Bible college and learning and, and being fretting over this public speaking thing. And I thought, well, uh, and, and, but I'm a rational thinker, so this is my thinking process. I thought, well, if somebody goes up and they say something really stupid, I'm going to laugh because it's funny. I'm not, but when I laugh, I'm not laughing at them. I'm kind of laughing at what they just did. And, and so I, in my head, I thought, so if I get up there and I mess up, then people are going to laugh, but I won't take it personally. I'll just take it that I'm giving joy to the world. And so that's been my, my rationale for, for speaking. So a number of years ago, I was part of another denomination, and, and I was part of this, uh, we were a church planting. Does that mean I'm done? That's it? All right, thanks. Thanks, we'll see you next week. Yeah. Um, so speaking, I was at this denomination and, and I was on this team and the team was for church planting and back then we were planting these churches and we were doing some things that were kind of innovative and, and unorthodox and, and we were seeing these churches begin to grow and these new opportunities and it was kind of an exciting time. So we're at this gathering and there's, there's several hundred people there, pastors and leaders and, and one of the guys from our team is talking about these new ventures that we're doing, these new endeavors that we're doing, and, and, and I was supposed to pray afterwards. And so I'm sitting there, and there's microphones kind of different places, and I'm down in the audience, but I know that at the end of this presentation, they're going to call on me to pray. And, and I start doing what I normally don't do, is when I was thinking about the praying, I'm thinking, I need a good line. I need a, you know, you want that good, one powerful line in your prayer. And I thought, and I went like that. I went, hmm, I'm going to pray this. Lord, grant us the courage to do whatever we need to do to advance your kingdom, no matter how unorthodox. I thought, ooh, that's a, that's a good line. I'm going to do that, Lord. Grant us the, the courage to do whatever we need to do to advance your kingdom, no matter how unorthodox. And so the presentation finished, and people were kind of kind of set back by these things and these, these things that we were doing and these ventures that we were doing. And, and they said, we'd like to ask one of our team members, Andy, to pray for this. And, and I step up to this microphone, and, and all these leaders bow their heads. And I get up, and I begin to pray, and I start to pray. And then I get to the point, the, the, the PowerPoint. And I say, Lord, Lord, may you grant us the courage to do whatever we need to do to advance your kingdom, no matter how unethical. <laughs> and if you've ever done something like that, time slows down. And I realized, because I heard what I said, and I catch myself going, no, no, I mean unorthodox. And there's complete silence. And then there's the snickers. And then there's the laughter. And then there's the clapping. And I'm still standing at the mic doing whatever you need to do. And at that point, I just said, amen. <laughs> and sat back down. And I went. And right after that is lunch break. So now we got to go with all these pastors and... Uh, yeah, so for years, uh, fellow pastors would say, uh, you know, uh, let's just do something unethical to advance the kingdom of God. And, and I was like, yeah, 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 you're funny. Um, you know, we're, t we're talking about the presence of, of God, and, and it seems like in church that, uh, that if you spend any time in, in church, it seems like we, we spend our entire lives trying to figure out just 
how we're supposed to live. What are we, what are we supposed to do? And how do we do it well? And, and what is orthodox and what is unorthodox and what is proper and what's improper? And, 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 and if you've been around church a long time, and some of you have grown up in church and been part of movements, and, and you know that over time there's, there's different trends that come through the church. There's ways that we worship. There's things that we do. There's things that we believe. There's things that we, uh, how we're to pray. There's things about what we're to declare. There's things about how we're supposed to surrender. And it's always these, these things come our ways. And, and sometimes we go through phases that we're supposed to feel a certain way. And sometimes we go through phases where it's all about what we think. And sometimes it's about what we say or what we don't say. It's about where we go and where we don't go. Who do we follow and who do we not follow? And we have all those, those things. And then that's kind of a normal part of, of kind of church life. And we do that. And, and if you've been in church any length of time, and if I were to name off different things that have happened in the church in the last 30, 40 years, you'd probably go, oh, I, I, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah, that was a big thing here. Oh, yeah, I remember, oh, I remember those books. And everybody had that book. Everybody was talking about those things. And, and there's, there's just all these, all these things. And, and when we went through kind of the pandemic season, and we came out of the other side of that, and then I changed jobs, and I began to look at things differently, and and I began to look and say, what is the Lord doing now? Like, what's, what's the most important thing right now? What are we supposed to be doing? And, and I get kind of encouraged because this isn't a new experience. There's, remember the story of Mary and Martha when, when Jesus shows up? And, and, I mean, Jesus is their, their, their friend. He shows up at their house. And, and, and so Jesus shows up at your house. You're going to go, what should I do when Jesus shows up at my house? And, and you get these two examples. You get Martha who, who begins to scurry about to say, because she's like, I, I, I want to serve Jesus. I want to I I, like, I bless him. I want to do something for him. And, and meanwhile, her sister Mary, she goes and she sits at Jesus' feet. And she's sitting there and just listening and not, not doing anything. And there's this kind of, you know, I love the, the passage because there's this back and forth between the two. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I've been there. And you can put yourself on, on either side. And, and sometimes if you're like me, you kind of, you, 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 you don't know where you fit. Sometimes you serve and sometimes you sit and sometimes you sit and sometimes you serve. And sometimes you don't know if you should be serving when you're sitting and you should be maybe sitting when you're serving. And, 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 and we get kind of confused. Because what we want to do is we want to, we want to be in the presence of Jesus. We want to do what's right, but sometimes we have to figure that out. So there's times in our lives when we can feel like we're doing, we're doing everything we think we ought to be doing, but at the end of the day, we feel like we're still missing something. We, we feel like there's, it's, it's something just not clicking the way it, it should be going. Now, here's the thing. That's not uncommon in church life. It's been going on for, for several thousands of years. And, and, and even now, there's people that will struggle with this. And, and, and what is it that we're supposed to be doing? What's the most important thing we should be doing? So the, the consolation is this, and I take a little bit of consolation in this, is that, that it's not just a, a me problem or a you problem. This is kind of an us problem. It, it's kind of been going on for a long time. But, but when we look at it, we go... Wait, when I read the scriptures and I read what Jesus says, we call it the good news. And, and I know that when Jesus talks about it, he talks about this abundant life that we're supposed to have. And in fact, in, in John 10.10, 10, he says this. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and to have it abundantly. It's this, this word, I love this word, Greek word. I, I'm not, I don't know a lot of Greek words, but the ones I like, no, I, I like. This one's Zoe. And Zoe means this, this vibrancy or this, this energy about it. It's, it's, it's this, not just kind of you're, you're getting by, it's like there's something exciting about this life. And so when Jesus talks about this, he says, that's, that's what I've come to give you, is this, this Zoe life. But, but in the package, he says, but, but you got to be aware that there is a thief, and the thief has a purpose. And the purpose is to steal away that vitality. So we go, okay, that's, that's the reality of what we're facing. So every believer faces these things. That Jesus is coming to give you life, and the thief is coming to 
steal it away. And it's not only the individuals. Churches, networks of churches, of believers have these problems. And, and, and if you look at church history and you go back, you see these kind of the ebb and these high points and low points. And, and, and the reason you have things that we call revival or renewal is, is because somewhere in the, in, the, in the journey, the thief stole away the abundance, stole away the Zoe. So then there has to be a resurgence. There has to be an awakening to that. And, and those points we call revival, we call them renewal. But those when the abundance comes back in again. And so we discover sometimes only when we've wandered way away from the abundance that we've actually drifted. Because the drift seems completely normal. So in our Christian lives, we, we, we try to do what we, we think we ought to do. We try to live right. But then sometimes it's just is cold. It's just distant. And, and sometimes it's in that distance that we wake up to it and go, this, it's supposed to be different. And then there's the, the choice to, to want to get back to that. So this happens with churches as well in, in Revelations chapter 2. And Revelation, the seven churches are, I, I, I did a seven-year series on Revelation one time, on, on the seven churches. But not that we talked about this passage the whole time, but we took each church was every year, and we would unpackage it. And it takes you everywhere else in the scriptures. And, and this, is the, this, is, this is where it starts. It's the church of Ephesus. And, and Jesus dictates this letter, and he, he, he says, I... I know, I know your works and your toils and your patience and, and your endurance and how you cannot bear with those who do evil, but have tested those who call themselves to be apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and, and bearing up for the, uh, my namesake and you have not grown weary, but... And the, the but carries a lot of weight here because Jesus introduces something and he says, you're doing all these things, but you've, you've lost that first love. You've lost that, that Zoe. You've lost that abundance. And, and, and he's writing it not as a condemnation. He's, he's kind of saying, do, do you remember that? Do you remember what it used to be like? And, and, and I know you're busy, and I know you're doing all these things, but this was kind of important. And, and, and he wants to bring them back into that. So it's not a, a condemning thing. And he's, he's kind of saying, on the same hand, if you read down through, he's kind of saying, and if you don't kind of come back into that, you're just going to keep drifting. And eventually you're going to drift so far out that I don't even know who you are anymore. He comes back to this. You know, if, if Jesus would have started with the line, you've abandoned your first love. If he would have started with Revelation 2.4, would have said, hey, by the way, I want you to know you, you've abandoned your first love. What would they have done? What would you have done? You would have went, wait, t time out. We have been working hard. We have been doing our homework. We've been studying theology. And whenever somebody comes by here to, check, to speak to us, we check them out. And we've even gone so far as to check people out to the point where we've realized that their theology was wrong. We've done that. We've been really good at that. We've been, we've been giving money. We've been supporting people. We've been sending out missionaries. We've been doing all those things. They would have listed all the things that they were doing. So it's brilliant that Jesus starts off and says, I, I know all the things you're doing. Then he pitches, but you've lost your first love. Because at that point, they go, but, uh, uh, uh. and that's the kind of the, the interaction we sometimes have with Jesus ourselves, where he says, I know your works, but I still have a concern. See, if you're raised in church, you know the expectations that are placed on you. 
And depending on what denomination you're raised in, you know, there's different set of, of, of rules. There's a different set of expectations. And, and some it's, a, it's about serving, and some it's about knowing, and, and some it's about you know, worship, and some it's about whatever. There's always a series of do's and don'ts. There's disciplines and habits and behaviors and practices, and, and, and we know those. We grow up in those. Those become normal to us. And in some ways, those things are actually easier because they're, they're measurable. Did you go to church this week? Yeah, good, check. Did you do your devotions today? Yeah, check. We can go through and we can say, did you give money this week? Yeah, check. Okay. Did you give extra money to extra causes? Yeah, check. Yeah. And we can go through and it's easier to measure those things. It's easy to look and say, did we do what we kind of think it's the expected behavior. And maybe those things that we're doing are actually really beneficial. They can be really good. They can be right to do. They can all be good, and those things can be even beneficial and a blessing to others. And sometimes, sometimes, hear me out, they can also be a distraction. We can get so consumed with the doing that, that, that we get distracted from the being. The, 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 that first love part. And, and the thing that I marvel at, and I thought it was just a me problem, then I began to realize it's an, it's an us problem, that as Christians, we're, we're always told to love God, but how do we love God? How do we do that, really? And, and we kind of try to figure that one out, and, and, and we can talk about our love languages and how we express our love to God, and we, we do those things. But you know what I find a lot, by a lot I mean most Christians struggle with, especially those who have been raised in church, have been Christians all their lives, that we really have a hard time accepting love from God. I was in a, in, a, in a group, and I was leading the group, and, and, we, and I, I was inspired with this question that was on the worksheet that I had written up and done up. And the question was, what are five things that God loves about you? What are five things that God loves about you? Now, previously, it was five things that you love about God, and, and people answered those really quickly. Five things that God loves about you. Do you know that almost everybody in that group couldn't put one thing? One, one girl, and I'm not overly comfortable with this part, she got very emotional. She actually started to, to weep, and I'm like, this is supposed to be a Bible study. Like, this is serious. serious. No, there's no crying in, in Bible study. <laughs> if you know that quote. Yeah. And it took me back because I knew I struggled with it, but I assumed everybody else would be easy with that. And, and I began to realize, and, and the whole Bible study stopped at that question because all of a sudden we began to look and go, why is it we can't, why is it, that we struggle so much with God loving us if he created us. So if there's anything, we, we can say, this is an us problem. So let's see what the, the solution is because there is good news and the good news is the, is the answer. So let's, let's get to that. And, and we'll take a path and then we'll finish it next week because we'll see how it applies today, next week. But you start with the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is this template. It's in the garden, that's the way God created it, and that's the way it was meant to be. And, and what you see in, in the first part of Genesis is what you see at the end of Revelation. So we go, okay, this is how it's supposed to be. This is how it's going to end up. And everything in the middle is the process to get back to the way it's supposed to be. Okay? At least that's the way I look at the Bible. And so you start with the Garden of Eden. How long were they in the Garden of Eden? If you do Sunday school, it's God created them. The next day they eat the apple and they're gone, right? We don't really know. You, you understand, like, they could have been in the garden for 
there was no concept of time, but if there was time, we could say they were in the garden for hundreds of years. We, we just don't know. At some point, God created them, and at some point, they sinned, and then they left the garden. So when they leave the garden, things change. Then you're in Genesis chapter 4. So Genesis chapter 4 starts off with this. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. That's, that's a code word there, if you, if you catch that. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So she has two, two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain, by all accounts, seems like he's a, a good man. Abel, by all accounts, seems to be a good man. Good son, good son. There is no description that either one of them were born with any kind of a predisposition to do something evil. It says there, just a little bit of a fact, Cain was a farmer, a worker of the ground, and Abel was a what? A shepherd. He, he was a keeper of sheep. So Cain is a farmer, that's kind of a general doesn't say what he raised. Cain, or Abel, though, very specifically, raised sheep. Both of these roles are considered good. They're good men, they're good sons, and they're doing good deeds. Now, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but not for Cain and his offering. He had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. There's a word that they use here. I highlight that, that, that word regard. Some translations you might have respect. Um, it, it's the, the way the word is... It means it made God happy, it, or it didn't make God happy. It was a pleasing thing. Uh, so, so the way it's worded is, you've got two offerings that come. One, God kind of looked at and went, mm, doesn't do anything for me. But this other offering came, and he went, ooh, that's the one I like. I, I, I pay attention to that. that it, it, it pleased God. It, it did something there. This, this respect that God had for these Offerings now, the way it's actually worded, and, and in this translation, you can it doesn't kind of come across this way really well. But it wasn't a personal thing. It wasn't that that Abel was righteous and his offering was received, and Cain was evil and it wasn't received. It, the way it's really written is that it, it wasn't a personal thing. It was the offering element, and you see that that. For Cain to not have what he brought to be acceptable caused him to, and, and that's that downcast. And, and have you ever seen people who, you know, when, when they're happy and they're excited, they're like this. But when they're downcast, the whole, their whole physical being changes. And that's how Cain felt. He felt defeated. It was his offering that wasn't worthy, but he felt it was him. Now, let's take the order of Cain. Um, if I had a flip chart, I'd write this on it, and I forgot it at the office. So here's the question. You've got to imagine this. So here's my flip chart. What, what was Cain's offering to God? Not a trick question. If you're paying attention, you go, what was it? Something from the garden, right? We'll say vegetables. He brought vegetables. All right. Now, question two. Was Cain's offering respected or accepted by God? No. So we'll put a, put a no there, right? So vegetables, no. Now, let's go to the order of Abel. What was Abel's offering to God? A what? A lamb, right? 
Question two, was his offering acceptable? Yes. So vegetables, no. Meat, yes. What does that tell you? Vegetarians are evil. <laughs> Those who hunt elk and eat all the meat while you're cleaning it are righteous. Um, no. But we do want to say, why was God pleased with the one offering over here? Why did he look at it favorably, but seemingly just, just not give his attention to this one? And why? You see, because we do this all the time. There's things that we bring to God that we think are going to be pleasing to God, that God's going to be impressed with, and he's not. And when he's not, or we don't get the response that we think we ought to get, then we get downcast. And sometimes we spend our, our whole Christian life feeling downcast, and sometimes we're, we're so downcast that we actually change our theology to say that if you're downcast, then that's actually a good thing because you're suffering with Jesus. And I go, that's not what it's saying. But to understand what it's saying, you've got to dig into it. So let's go back to the order of Cain. What was Cain's offering a product of? Now, I'll give you a little history. Uh, and you go by memory here. Remember back in Genesis, they, they eat the fruit, whatever the fruit may have been. God finds out they eat the fruit, and he says, what have you done? And Adam says, it's, it's her fault. And she says, well, it's not my fault. It's his fault, the Satan, this thing that you put in the garden, right? So God says, you got to go. Like we, I, and, and we got to unpackage that sometimes. It's, why did, was that a judgment or was that a mercy thing that God did? But they leave. And on their way out, God gives them, and some would say it was a curse. Some would say God makes three statements. And one of the statements he makes to Adam is this. When you were in the garden, everything came easy. All the food was there. You had it. You just had to go take it. It was yours. But he tells Adam, but, but when you go out there, it's different. And when you go out there, there's things called thorns and thistles. And, and what they're going to do is they're just going to take over. And so what you're going to have to do, Adam, is, is you're going to have to work. You're going to have to work really hard. To, to prepare the soil, to drive those things back and to plant what you need to plant and to work it. it. It is going to take you blood, sweat, and tears to produce what should come easy. But you're going to have to work really, really hard to produce the crops from the soil. What does Cain do? Cain works really, really hard to produce what he produced. What was the product of Cain's offering? It was his, his hard work. Okay? You tracking that? Now let's go over to Abel. What was Abel's offering a product of? Now don't think about modern farming because now we're, we do all this stuff. Go back in the day. What was the job of a shepherd? Shepherd takes sheep and makes sure the sheep get where they need to go in a field. And then from the field, they need to make sure he gets them down to the water and they drink the water. And then the shepherd kind of makes sure that they stay safe. And then he gets to watch as they know one another and produce offspring. And he just sits and goes, hey, look at that. That's great. Now, if there are any farmers that raise pigs or livestock, don't take this personally. Abel had it kind of easy. He would go out in the field and watch sheep do their thing. And then when they have this lamb, he brings this lamb and he sheds its blood, and then he brings portion of that to God. What was, what was, the, what was 
the product of Abel's. It was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of, of a lamb for him. It was a sacrifice of blood. So if you think about it, which, which one took more? Well, you look and say, well, this, in that day, this was a whole lot more work. This was more laborious. This doesn't seem fair. Does the blood of this lamb makes God happy? Gets God's attention where all the hard work, God looks and goes, just doesn't, doesn't ring the same way. So you look at the order of Cain. It's, it's this, this offering of hard work. Now think about this. Now, now think about it in terms of, of, of us. What's the, the motivator there when we live by the order of Cain? Now you think about it. Some of you were raised in church and you can go, you can rattle these off. Because what, what did you feel when you were young? You'd feel things like guilt. Have you, have you done enough? And you're doing the right thing, really? You know, you need to do good. You get motivated by shame. What you've done, like, that was horrible. You should do something about that to make up for the bad thing that you did. Right? You need to, to do more. Or maybe you get to the point where it's just, I'm feeling pretty good about myself because look at all the things that I've done. And we step right into the, the trap of pride because then we begin to think I am good enough. Or, and this is probably more common than anything else, it's that fear, that superstitious fear. If I don't do enough and if I don't do what's right, bad things are going to happen to me. I don't want bad things to happen to me or anybody else, so I better, I better do what I need to do. Those are all the motivators over here. And we look and we go, that's kind of my, that's kind of my Christian life for most of it. So you look over here at the, the order of Abel. It's an offering of the blood of the lamb. And, and what's, the, what's the motivator when you live by this order? Well, Thanksgiving is definitely one. Gratitude. Because we go, that, that was a lamb. That was an innocent lamb. And, and that makes me right. I can, I can be thankful for that. It, it's, a, it's an element of faith because we go, I know it wasn't me. It wasn't my hard work. It was this thing that, that, that I offered. It's grace. Because I understand that I'm acceptable because of the, the life that was shed. And it's hope. Because if, if this is what pleases God, then, then there's a chance. That God's will can be carried out in my life. So you got these, these contrasts of these two and these two orders. Are, are they compatible with one another? Do they get along? They, they don't. Genesis 4.8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Sounds so nice. He approached him. He, he interacted with him. And when they were in the field, away from the sanctuary, away from the house... Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. When you've done all this work and it doesn't seem to have the reward that they're getting over here, the thought becomes this. And it's a principle that continues today. It's a, it's a natural response that we have. If we've done all that we think we ought to do and it still isn't pleasing, and they haven't done anything and it's acceptable, then I've got two choices. I either have to change, which I don't understand why I would or how I could, 
So therefore, my rationale is, if I can eliminate this and get rid of it, then that becomes the acceptable alternative. Because if I can get rid of that, and I don't have anything to compare against, then all of this that I'm doing is all that there is, and it is right before God, and therefore I am right before God, because there's nothing else, and if God doesn't have that to look on, he can look upon me, and then I'll be right. Now, if you wonder, is this still going on today? Go on social media on the Christian sites, and you will have all kinds who are operating over here who are telling you why those people over there are heretics. And you can go on podcasts that that do nothing but explain why they are right and everybody else is wrong. Because the order of Cain cannot tolerate the order of Abel. But the order of Abel is operating by a spirit of, of grace and gratitude and thanksgiving. They look over and they say, "Come, come over here. This is good. They don't need to attack or discredit over there because it just doesn't cross their mind because they're in such a state of, this is wonderful. Genesis 4.6. This rolls back a little bit before Cain goes off and kills his brother. Pay attention to what what happens here. The Lord shows up. Now, here's here's something remarkable. You have to catch this. Because remember I said, it it wasn't that God rejected Cain. God just didn't accept his offering. And you go, who who does the approaching here? Does Cain come back to God on his knees pleading for God's attention? No. God seeks out Cain. It's God who comes to Cain. If he rejected Cain, he wouldn't come to Cain, but he doesn't reject the person. He just doesn't accept the offering. He goes, that's that's not what I'm looking for. And God comes to Cain, and he says, and he doesn't say it because he doesn't know. He says it because he wants Cain to hear himself say it. Why are you so angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well... If you do, not do well in terms of, because this is all about the doing. It's not that if you do more and you do it better. He says, no, if, if, you, if you start with what I say is important, then, then we can do all kinds of things, but, but you got to start here. So if you would just start here, then we can do all these things. But if you don't, and he warns him, says, if you don't, I want you to understand the reality. And the reality is that sin is crouching at your door. And when we say sin is crouching at the door, it, it, that, that, that wording is, is like a, a predator hiding and waiting for its prey. He said, that's kind of the picture he paints. He says, this thing, and we're not saying that it's a, a physical being outside of a physical house. We're saying this, this spiritual being is right outside waiting. But he's saying to Cain, but you're still safe. But if you go down that route, you're going to get ambushed. And God, in his loving mercy, says, Don't go that way. Do what you're supposed to do. And everything's going to change. Because when you look at this, there's a a meaning there to be grasped here in this story. It's a principle that God communicates. Yeah, that sin is not a physical being that's outside of a physical house. But sin is a contaminant that is outside of one's being, but looking to gain entry. And the house is usually a reference throughout the Bible of, of your life, of your individual life. So it's, it's saying this, that, that if you continue to try to earn God's favor by your works 
and you're continually dissatisfied by that, then what happens is, is that the sin is, is right outside your door, right outside of your life, looking to gain entry. And the entry into your life are your thoughts. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. You know how the thief steals, kills, and destroys your abundant life? It's through your thoughts. And if, if Satan can gain an entry into your thoughts where you go, oh yeah, that's not fair. I've done all this work. I've earned God's favor. I, I've put in my time. That's not, that's not right. Did God really say, don't eat from this tree? And the door opens and the thought comes in, and when the thought comes in, the actions change. And so a simple little thought for Cain led him to go and look his brother in the eye and start to talk and lure him out into the wilderness so that he could kill him. A good man, a good son, a hard worker, but he kills another good man, another good son, another good worker. How do you go from that to this? Because he doesn't pay attention to what God says to him. He doesn't pay attention to what God said to the very first man made. In the world that you live in, you've got to rule over those things that are bad. You've got to rule over the enemy. You've got to subdue it, and you've got to take authority over it so that you can multiply. The advice to Cain was the same that he gave to his Adam. It's not going to be your hard work. It's going to be your first love. You see, we spend a lot of time here that if you choose to root your identity before God based on your works for God, then you're going to come up short every time. And I can tell you that by experience. And in coming up short, God says, it's, it's gonna, you're going to get frustrated. And if you don't take, if you don't repent of that, if you don't change, then God says, it's not going to go well for you. Because you're going to entertain those thoughts. You're going to let those thoughts in. Sin's going to become part of your life. And when we begin to look at this, we see that you need to choose to stop trying to be based on your doing. And begin to understand that God loves you. And that God has provided the lamb. You see, it's no coincidence that they say Cain was not a raiser of livestock, or Abel was not a raiser of livestock. Abel was a raiser of sheep, and the lamb was shed. And it doesn't take a Bible scholar to go, wait, we, we hear that all the way through to the very end. Because God's saying this. I want you to understand right from the very beginning, in this world, outside of the garden, here's what I'm pleased with. When you accept the lamb that's sacrificed for you. And then from that place, we go and we do. Because the life of faith in Christ isn't about doing nothing. It's about starting here and then going and doing. Faith without works is dead. We know that. It's all about the starting point. Because here, is sin crouching at our doorway? No. Here, our hearts are so warmed with gratitude about Christ's love for us that we turn and we say, now, Lord, what do I do? Because greater is you who is in me than he who is in the world. Let's go. And let's do what you would have for us. So you think about this. I'm going to give you something just as we wrap up. What can you hold on to? 
And it goes back to this passage. We get to the end of the Bible, almost the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. You have this throne room experience. And he says, you know, the angels are there and all this thing's here. The accuser of the brethren is there. That, that, he's, he's still around. And he's still doing what he does, still accusing, still trying to incite the thoughts. But here's the encouraging part. You read this passage and it says, but the saints who were there, they overcame. And he gives you the, the clue. He says, here's how they overcame. It's really simple. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. You put a period there, but it doesn't end. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And what does that mean? If you grew up in some churches where you would have Testimony Sunday, you would tell your story of how you came to Christ. And, and sometimes when I would read that, I went, well, they, they would share their testimony? No. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and their confessions. And by that it means this, that what they said about themselves was what the Lamb said about them, what the Word said about them. What they believed about themselves was what the Word said about them. Even though in their head they may go, wait, I, 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 I think I, I can do more. And they go, no, no, no. You overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. When we begin to slip into this religiosity side, we begin to measure ourselves based on what we do, based on what we've done, based on what we intend to do. But the saints overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The solution to overcoming the accuser of the brethren is the same today as it's been all along. The accuser will thrive on guilt and shame and pride and fear. But the blood of the Lamb instills in us grace and gratitude and hope and joy. Because Jesus came to give us life and give it to us abundantly. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. You're probably familiar with the I Am list. And as we wrap up this morning, I just want to read through these. You may have seen these before. You may go, yeah, yeah, I've got that in the back of my Bible or I've got that at home where we did a Bible study once on Neil Anderson and he shared all these things. But I know the struggle between these two. And I, and I know that we kind of ping pong back and forth in our lives. But this morning I want to give you this. I want you just to think about it. Because this is the word of the Lord and what the word of the Lord says about you and what the Lord, word of the Lord means about you and what the word of the Lord shows you about how he sees you and about what the Lord of, word of the Lord wants you to, to be more than anything else. The word of the Lord says that you are accepted, that, that I am God's child, that as a disciple I am a friend of Jesus Christ, that I have been justified, declared righteous, that I am united with the Lord and am one with him in spirit, that I have been bought with a price and I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I have been chosen by God and adopted as his child. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ. I have direct access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. And it says that I am secure. I am free from condemnation. I am assured that God works for my good in all circumstances. I am free from any condemnation brought against me, and I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am confident that God will complete the good works that he started in me. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. And I am significant. 
I am a branch of Jesus Christ, the true vine, and a channel of his life. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am a good temple. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realm. I am God's workmanship. I, am, I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am who I am because of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Do you believe that? If we want to be in the presence of Jesus and know the abundant life, we start here. And when we get here, then we go and we do. But if we try to do and approach God, it doesn't get us there. And it's not a condemning thing. It's a matter of just going, what do you want? What do you want to experience in your life? Because Jesus says, just, just, just trust me. Just, I, I, I've got a way that works. Just trust me. And the surrendering part is one of the hardest things that we do as a believer. To truly believe that Jesus is enough to make you right before the Father. If you come back next week, we're going to take this a little bit further. And I'm going to show you what, what I feel like the Lord has shown me about today and about what it means to be in his presence. So let's be encouraged because that life is wonderful. And when we step into it, it is renewal. It is revival. It is regenerative. It, it, it fuels us. It inspires us and encourages us. And a church that embraces that, that's a good time. So let's, let's set our heart on that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word that encourages us and, and keeps us going. But Lord... We thank you for your sacrifice, for your shed blood, for the opportunity to step in and receive that in all its fullness. And Lord, we pray that we will do great things for you, but we pray that we'll do great things out of, a, a, out of an overwhelming sense of your love and acceptance. So Lord, as, as we set our hearts on you, Lord, draw near and show us the way. And as this church sets their heart on you as they go into this new season, Lord, we pray that you will just infuse them with the overwhelming sense of love and gratitude and hope. And that Landmark Christian Fellowship will be a church of revival and a church of renewal because its people are inspired by you and your sacrifice. So as we close in worship, Lord, May our hearts just be open to what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.